Hello and welcome to the menu, Monocle Radio's food and drink program. I am Markus Hippi. Today we devote the entire program to food and drink in Canada's largest city, Toronto, a place known for its fine array of independent food, drink and hospitality businesses. We'll speak to the chefs, restaurateurs, corner shop owners and hospitality entrepreneurs who continue to make Toronto one of Canada's richest settings for food and drink. That is ahead in the next 30 minutes here on The Menu on Monocle Radio. Monocle's correspondent in Toronto is Thomas Lewis, and he joins us now to guide us. Thomas, it's over to you. Thank you very much, Marcus, and a very warm welcome to you to Toronto. And as you can probably hear, we're beginning this special programme devoted to food and drink and hospitality here in Canada's largest city, Outdoors. And our tour begins today in the Yorkville neighbourhood, where just inside, preparation in the kitchens is underway for dinner service a little later today at Osteria Julia. My name is Rob Rossi. I'm the executive chef and owner of Osteria Giulia and Giulietta Restaurant. Giulietta is more of, um, I would say, like a central Italian restaurant where we focus more on the casual aspect of dining. More pizza, pasta, lots of salads, fun appetizers. It's a very lively space where I think it, it can certainly be a special occasion restaurant, but it's certainly one of those places that people frequent all the time. Uh, it's become a staple in the neighborhood. And so when we opened Julia, we want to cater a little bit more towards what we believe the neighborhood is. And we, we have some information with the neighborhood because my partner, David, had Lunita before that at Enoteca. And it was here for 13 years, 14 years. So we know the people, we know the vibe. And so we want to sort of elevate the cuisine, slow the service down and provide something a little bit more upscale than Julieta. And this way there's a nice dichotomy between the two as well. They're not just, you know, of the same ilk, right? And we wanted to to do something entirely different, I think, than what is uh, typically offered. And I think we did it. I, I mean, there's not a lot of Italian, like Northern Italian seafood restaurants. And I, I think we, we really hit the nail on the head with it. When you have something that's that's so quickly becomes such a treasure part of the sort of restaurant offering in the city. How sort of delicate a business does it feel when you want to evolve and you want to keep pushing yourselves as as restaurateurs and and chefs without sort of tampering too much with what people feel is special about it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always challenging to come up with a new concept because, I mean, at the heart of it, we always try to bring back something that the city is missing And I think what the city is missing is the simplistic way of doing things. I feel like a lot of modern chefs, they they try to do a lot of modern things, as, as, as the name implies. But we focus more on the classical approach of a restaurant. We try to bring back the things that restaurants sort of lack now. That sort of perfect ambiance, heavy service where, you know, we were really attentive towards guests and... The food in itself, too, like really most of the dishes that we do in both restaurants are of classic origin. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We're just trying to polish it up a little bit. The grilled seafood platter, um, I guess the, the frutti di mare alla griglia is really what it is. This, is. this is one of the most iconic dishes here. 
uh, maybe iconic is not uh, is it maybe a little speaking too highly of it because we're so new but it is certainly one of those dishes that that likely won't ever leave the menu because I think it speaks directly to the concept you're coming in if you're going to a seafood forward restaurant you you would expect to see something like that uh, and what I love about it is that it's it's hyper seasonal we're always trying to evolve it we're trying to bring new seafood to the table and again treating the seafood very simply there's not a lot of restaurants that can go that just grill something really nice season it really nice and just dress it very simply and that's all we're trying to do because really we're not trying to manipulate the seafood it's like here's a great piece of octopus a great sardine I mean, a nice piece of cod and as long as it's cooked right presented nicely that's that's a win restaurants get better and chefs get better when we have better things to play with and i've noticed you know especially over the last call it 10 years the product that's available is far greater than it ever has been now on the other side of it too food in itself is actually kind of getting worse right because if you go to the grocery store and regular food is is not great and it's genetically modified and sort of all looks the same but but there's a lot of farmers and a lot of producers that are pushing really boutique heirloom things, handcrafted things. And you're right, like this, this is going to push people to be able to do more singular concepts. Like you said, they focus, hyper-focus on one thing and they do a great job by it. So I've seen it get better. I think that this is part of the reason why we've been so successful because our procurement is great. We spend a lot of time trying to find great seafood, whether it's sustainable seafood, Canadian seafood, produce that not everyone can get in the grocery store things that actually have true meaning to them and things that grow well here and we adapt those ingredients to try to make our version of italian because italian food is really just based off you know it's based off ingredients but there's only so far that we can go with that because we can't copycat italian food because we don't grow the same things we can take this we can take similar ingredients and we can make similar dishes and I think that's the real ethos of, of the cuisine, right? Is take what you have the freshest and make the best thing you can with it. So if someone says, hey, I, I've got great octopus from, from the islands out in Vancouver. Amazing, Pacific octopus, we'll buy it. If we can't get it, we buy the next best. Uh, so we, we do focus a lot on Canadian uh, cuisine. Like, uh, like just go back to this grilled fish platter. Uh, in the spring, we had pickerel on there. It's not a typical fish to see on, a, on an Italian sort of menu, but, but um, you know, it, it's fresh, it's local, it's great quality. People recognize it. We should be using it. So we, we certainly try to use everything that we can. Spot prawn season comes in, we're buying spot prawns. We're buying Dungeness crab from Vancouver or, or uh, anywhere in the Pacific Northwest. Maybe it's Seattle, maybe it's Alaska. Yeah, so I think that's at the heart of it. Summertime is obviously heavily we heavily rely on ontario produce and fruits um it only makes sense they taste better when they're grown here and you know the 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 time to bring it to us is very minimal which is great in the winter time is when it gets tough right because really all we have here is root vegetables so we have to be more a little bit more creative i find because in the summertime when the bounty's there i mean it's endless you, you can just create things all day but yeah, that's what we try to do. We try to always buy local, and if we can't, what's the next place we can go to that's 
you know, the most logical. The restaurant sector here in Toronto has been looked at anew over the past few years in a couple of different ways. First, the Michelin Guide published its first overview of the city in 2022, its first ever guide in Canada, and Osteria Julia was among the dining rooms recognised. Uh, it was very special because I really, I mean, we knew that they were coming, but, and I really mean this when I say it, because I, I, we never create things with the intention of getting accolades. I think the true accolades are, are you busy? Is the restaurant full? Because I think if you're only trying to cook for stars or write-ups in newspapers or magazines, you're never going to do the right thing. So we didn't really think, or at least I didn't really think, we were going to be included in the Michelin Guide. Our goal was always the same. Let's create something really fun. Let's create something authentic and genuine. And let's make great food for the guests and great service. That's what we do first. If something great comes out of it, fantastic. And it did. We got very lucky. I mean, the restaurant has, if anything, it, the restaurant hasn't gotten busier. It has remained as busy as it was, which is the real, the best thing about it. And, and to be honest, it gives the staff, I mean, far beyond my own feelings about it, it gives the staff, I think it gives them the recognition that they deserve because the staff, along with myself and my other, you know, chef de cuisines, the staff are the ones that are actually day after day doing it because i think the other thing that you can do really wrong is if you get a star and you just lop off any chance of people ever coming there it's arrogant and it's it's unnecessary right like we always want everyone for the first time hey we want to come there we do our best to make sure everyone can come in the restaurant and part of that is david the way that he books the restaurants i find that people if they say hey i really want to come i've had a hard time we always make it happen we make it happen. We have a process in which reservations are made. We don't. We don't make. We don't make special requests for long-term guests. It's all. The, it's all the same. So if you've never been here before, if you're new to the city, you'll get a table. But it was the period of lockdown in Toronto that brought about another big innovation. The city had some of the longest bans on indoor dining of any city in the world. The initiative to counter the effects of that were called Café T.O., which allowed restaurants across the city to build temporary outdoor dining spaces, either on the pavements or into narrowed stretches of the road outside their venues. It had a big impact, and not just for the restaurants themselves. The atmosphere on the streets had a kind of life and energy to it that the city hadn't been known for to similar scale at least before. But changes to the programme this year have, for restaurateurs like Rossi, threatened to take away some of its sheen. Yeah, so Cafe T.O. was an initiative to sort of bolster the restaurant business after a big downfall in the economy caused by COVID and the long restrictions and uh, shutdowns that, that Toronto experienced. And most restaurants were granted patio access where they typically weren't before. And yeah, you're right. It, it did create a, a more bustling... Uh, interesting city where, you know, people were on the street side, they were dining, they were drinking, and it was, I don't want to say more European, because it, it's still not at the heart of it, but it definitely felt more lively in its approach. We actually don't have a patio this year. I think with the recent changes to the regulations, it made it very difficult. I, I don't think I would be the only one to say this, but I think that that program is not a good one anymore. I mean, it's still great if you can do it. That's fantastic. Of course it is. 
but I think a lot of people were excluded from it. I know that most of the patios, it was probably dropped by 50%. Um, and then from there, probably dropped even a little bit more considering the, 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 the rules behind it are just too difficult to, to maintain. They, they sort of blanketed the rules across city, but, but the city is very different from street to street. So we had a we had a challenging time with it, and we, we decided just to opt out of it and and continue regular a la carte service in dining. I think we honestly had one of the greatest patios in the city. It was beautiful, it was curated nice, um, it was it was put together properly and maintained well. But unfortunately, it didn't follow underneath the guidelines of the new program. I'm not sure if they're if they're if they're planning on uh, reconsidering some of the rules. I don't know, but I think if if they maintain what they what they've done this year we'll probably see less patios move forward year after year which would feel like a real loss i think wouldn't it because i, I feel it's a loss and i and look i think a lot of restaurants you know fortunately you know for us we're still busy but i think you know i've also been in the situation in the restaurant business too where you're operating a restaurant where you own a restaurant that's not doing so well and by allowing uh owners and operators to to actually have the patio saves them Right. It really does save them this year. I don't know the effects of it, though, because I feel like there were so many patios that dropped. I don't know how that dynamic is going to affect the restaurant business now, because if most people don't have them, then people are being relegated back towards the inside of the restaurant. Right. It's hard to judge it at this point. For first-time restaurateurs, Toronto's food and drink pedigree means that there is always opportunity to try something new. Hi there, good morning. It's lovely to meet you. Hey, morning. How are you, Ben? We're doing well. Thanks for coming out. Thank you very much for having me. I've come to Florette, a new cosy neighbourhood restaurant housed in a Victorian former townhouse on the western stretch of Queen Street West. Its founder and owner is Jerry Zhang, who left a long career as a senior music executive to open up his first dining room. I think it really starts like even before any time I was in the music industry or anything like that, like just growing up, not in Toronto, but in like I grew up in Scarborough and then in Markham, which are kind of two suburbs of Toronto. And I guess growing up, like a lot of the way that I discovered Toronto and fell in love with the city was through restaurants. In high school, I started to, every once in a while, I would skip a day of school and me and a few friends, we would just come downtown and like try a random restaurant. But, you know, I would be in charge of going on, you know, the different restaurant blogs and finding some cool place for us to check out or whatever. So a lot of like how I discovered the city was through a miniature look at the food scene at the time. So that's how I started to fall in love with the city. And I guess now moving here as a full grown adult, like I wanted to make something that was like part of that mosaic of what makes Toronto's food scene special. I think Toronto to me is like multiculturalism is such a big part of it. You know, me growing up as, you know, somebody who was born in Canada but is Chinese, seeing all the food that is from all sorts of different cultures is such an important part of what this is. And I think that's what we've tried to bring with Florette as well. Like I wanted to create a space that maybe drew on a few things that I had learned in the music industry, which is me not being the musician and me not being the artist or the producer and the person, you know, actually making the music. The best thing I could possibly do is to create the best platform for artists and producers and the actual creatives to create. And so with Florette, like the concept is very, very fluid, both 
in the back of house and in the kitchen and also in the front of house and the bar where we don't have like one cultural influence. We have influences from all over. We want to use as much local seasonal ingredients as possible, but we want to use those local seasonal ingredients in ways that are a little bit unexpected and a little bit different than one might expect. So for example, our chef, uh, Chef Mon, he's of Indian descent and he's been able to incorporate like certain interesting Indian flavors. So we have a clams dish that he's very, very proud of that's done with Induya butter and then some fried curry leaves and then some lemon vinaigrette to finish off. And it's sort of this like combination of flavors that you might not initially expect. And it's like a simple little twist on things. And the curry leaves, for example, like we walk over to a small grocery store out in Parkdale, like, you know, 15 minutes that way and get the curry leaves every week. And so it really kind of is meant to bring together flavors from culturally wherever we feel is something interesting and gives both the kitchen team and the bar team the ability to play around with any ingredients that they see as something cool and something that might work with something else. So that's why we wanted to create this concept that, you know, isn't anything, but is just kind of like fun, a neighborhood restaurant and something that, you know, most importantly is without pretension. Just finally, Jerry, the pressures of working in the music industry, I guess, are pretty specific and pretty sort of acute at times. This is your first restaurant, I believe. And the pressures of opening your first restaurant are pretty acute too, I guess. How's the experience been for you sort of in a general way so far, given that a restaurant is just such an ecosystem of so many different constantly moving parts, I guess? I think what I've learned from this whole journey is if you keep plugging away at it, eventually it does end up working out. There was obviously tons of blood, sweat and tears put into the space. And honestly, like that's such a big part of like through the process of the construction and of, you know, transforming the space, part of what working with local makers and local designers and local creators of all types was like, you know, for example, this light was done by somebody locally as well. And on day one, there was a point when it wasn't dimming quite enough to the level of dimness that we wanted it to. So he literally drove here, came and pulled it down and started pulling out weird wires all over the place. It was all over the bar. And I was like, this is full on mad scientist mode here is I don't know if this is safe. And then all of a sudden it just dimmed. And, you know, you can't really do that if you're buying stuff from all over. It's like being able to work with somebody locally who really cares about it because it's at the end of the day, a restaurant that is coming into their community in a lot of ways too. Many of the people who worked on this project literally live within a walking distance of the project as well. So it creates a different level of like care in everything when you're working with people that this is not just something that they're contributing to, but is also something that will be hopefully a product that they can enjoy at the end of the day too. And one of those people who live in the neighbourhood and who contributed to the creation of the restaurant is Dion Fashioner, the designer whose studio Denizens of Design, which she launched back in 2014, created Florette's warm and inviting interior. Maybe walk us through that, creating the intimacy in a space that's already kind of fairly intimate I guess how tricky that is not to sort of overfill somewhere not to over design I guess but also to create somewhere that just feels natural like when you walk in not over designing is critical like we really thought through all of the details from the spacing of the tables how many seats you know there's nothing worse than going and, and seeing a restaurant that's so vast that 
it never looks busy. Like you want to be here because it's always going to look busy because it's so tight. But when you're in here, you still feel this sense of like, I can have an intimate conversation just in the way that we've created these little nooks and nodes through the design, just through strategic planning, the furniture, how it's set up, how it's lit. It kind of creates these zones in a space that is just primarily wide open and like almost like a tunnel and we instead of working against that we chose to kind of highlight that through the barrel vaulted ceiling but then at the floor level creating these various areas that were actually inspired by home so the dining area or the bar having its dining table legs or the living room or dining seating area having the sofa type banquette so everything just kind of alludes back to this idea of home, which is the root of the space. And I did want to just ask briefly, you were talking earlier about the stools we're sitting on, the details, kind of how important it was for you to have the manufacturing of lots of the pieces in here to be done in Toronto, in the city where the restaurant is as well. I think lately, for me personally, in my practice, I feel this need to approach projects from this idea of like community by design. So allowing the makers themselves to have some input into what they're bringing to the space. So maybe, for example, this light we're sitting next to is actually a manufactured product by a small light shop. And we designed the custom arm to go with it. So rather than it just being an off-the-shelf product, it's now sort of given this customized look. But it still is something that's readily available to the general public. So I think that, in the sense, kind of also speaks to this idea of, like, if this was a, a space that was developed organically like you would in your home, that these pieces get collected over time and they're not necessarily from the same time period so you might find something that's original we have some victorian lights that we found at victorian revival a shop in toronto and then we have custom lights that feel more 70s and they all work together because they tell the same color story they fit the space but they're not all from the same era and i think a lot of times with designs You know, things are coming from Europe and everything has a European feel. But having local presence in the space was critical. If you're going to create a space for the community, you can't be designing with elements that are out of the community. So the majority of the things here are Canadian made. And if they're not, they're pretty close. U.S. or most of it is local, though. The quality of food, you know, very broadly speaking, is really high in Toronto. And I'd say it's a real sort of calling card for the city, both in the variety, as you were saying earlier, of the dining rooms, the foods, the countries and cultures that are sort of represented here. But I guess even in very formal places, there's like an informality because it doesn't feel, lots of them anyway, don't feel particularly exclusive that you can go to somewhere in Yorkville and have a nice birthday meal you know, maybe you will never go there again or you don't go to places like that regularly. But there isn't this kind of, well, I can't go here because this is the type of food this is. That's my impression anyway. And I just wondered, you know, from a design point of view, A, whether you'd agree with that, and B, I guess, you know, what that does to when you're conceiving a a space, kind of a restaurant, the kind of canvas you're going to create for that kind of idea to unfold in. I would say that the product here is quite high-end, but it's presented in a way that is simple and honest and feels approachable to many people. Whereas, yes, I mean, if you're going to go dine at one of those Michelin star restaurants, are you going to come back every week? Probably not. One, the cost is probably prohibitive. And yeah, it feels like you're there for sort of a, 
a special occasion or this is a moment I can check this off on my list and then I'm never coming back here again. I can't imagine spaces like that being something where they get a lot of regulars. And I don't think that they're designed to be that way. I think they get enough traffic from people coming into the city and wanting that experience. But in the case of what we do here at Florette, you know, this really is with the intention of having people come back. And so we take each design concept at face value. What are we trying to achieve here? We want to create a community space. So we are going to design it in a way where it's not pretentious, it's approachable, people want to come back, and, you know, it speaks for itself, I think. Toronto's independent dining rooms aren't the only hospitality businesses that set Toronto's neighbourhoods apart from one another. Its mixed and rich array of independent coffee shops also play a part in giving the city's neighbourhoods character and parts of their identity. And I've come along to one of them today. Milky's in Toronto's West End was opened by Fraser Greenberg in 2019, who also owns the design-led flooring studio Relative Space in the city. So I've been doing my other job for 25 years. Do something long enough, uh, it comes a little bit routine, I think. Uh, so I guess you could accuse this as being a bit of a midlife crisis kind of thing, but I see it a little bit differently. For me, it was a bit of a um, creative output. I think they, you know, when you do a job, it's hard to stay creative for 25 years in a job. And I think I needed to do something different. I wanted something creative. And I've worked in design my entire life. Um, definitely not educated in it, but experienced in design. And I always thought, you know, when I, when I travel, uh, my go-to is coffee shops. I feel like the coffee shop is sort of that hub of culture where my, where my day is going to begin. And, you know, I talk to people. Too. And I was looking around Toronto and I thought that we don't really have these sorts of designed coffee shops. I'm not saying they don't. They, there are some here too, but something that was really like a design first. Um, and I thought that it would be cool to have one in Toronto. And it would be cool to do something different. Uh, do something very distinctly Toronto. Uh, I'm, I'm from Toronto, of course, myself. Uh, something that sort of reflects, I think, that what Toronto needs in a good morning. A space that you can walk into and feel like, oh, this is, this is nice and this is, you know, this is home for us. Milky's interior was designed by Toronto's Bate Jorba Architecture Studio, which cladded the walls and ceiling in a striking interlocking pattern of curved-edged panelling in white and warm wood, making it an eye-catching addition to Toronto's array of independent coffee shops. The diversity in the coffee scene is what makes it super exciting. You can find coffee shops with origins from any continent of the world, which is amazing. I mean, I don't know how many places in the world have that, but we have that here. It's cool. And there's also all these different business models uh, for coffee shops. We have the sort of like third wave owner-operator where you go in and you get that top-notch hospitality because like the proprietor of the shop is there greeting and making your drink. You have that sort of setup. Uh, you have, you know, the more... I don't want to say in a bad way. It's not that being more corporate is bad, but you have these very like Toronto-flavored sort of coffee shops where you go in and it feels like a very Toronto experience too. And But then we have like Italian coffee shops, Japanese coffee shops, French, Ethiopian... You name it, you can find them here. I think that's what makes it awesome. And then going back to the whole idea of of diversity here too, you have people from all sorts of backgrounds approaching coffee and opening up shops in Toronto based on their unique experience. And I think that just creates such an interesting variety of shops to experience here. But that sort of makes makes coffee in Toronto maybe 
a bit of a unique, unique in its own sort of way tied to the city as well. Oh, absolutely. I think that, um, I mean, people always say for, for here, my friends, when they visit the shop, they're always like, it's such an expression of you. Right, which makes me happy, of course. Uh, but I think that's true of so many of these sort of small owner-operated shops. Um, if you go into a local cafe anywhere, the owner's imprint on the shop is so strong. Um, and I think that when you, if you're in Toronto, and whether you're from Toronto, if you're not from Toronto, but you're growing up here, you're experiencing all these different things. And when you sit down, like I did, to define what makes a good morning or what's going to make your coffee shop special, I think that unique experience that everyone brings to it just results in something special. But it isn't only coffee as something to sup on that Toronto and its surrounding areas has made its own. As in other cities around the world, the period of the pandemic spurred some deep changes to the city's food and drink culture, most notably in the relaxation of its historically tightly regulated rules around selling alcohol. Alcohol retail here in Ontario is still dominated by the LCBO, the fairly austerely named government-run Liquor Control Board, which operates its ubiquitous chain of alcohol shops right across the province. It remains among the largest government-owned buyers of alcohol anywhere in the world. But early into the first period of lockdown in Toronto, regulations were eased to allow restaurants and other food businesses to become alcohol retailers too. It's been a popular move that's outlived the period it was instituted in to help food and drink businesses counter the hit to their revenues. And as a result, Toronto now boasts a slew of fine independent bottle shops right across the city. This has also been something of a boon to independent alcohol makers, like Kinsip, a gin, vodka and whiskey distillery located in the picturesque countryside of Prince Edward County, which is a two-hour or so drive away from the city and where I've come to pay a visit. My name is Michael Watterson, and I'm one of the owners of Kinsip House of Fine Spirits. Kinsip is an estate distillery, so we're a farm that grows the grain that we then mill and distill into a wide variety of spirits. It's uh, really of the place. This is a kind of the, what an estate distillery is about. Um, Kinsip is our kin. It's a family enterprise, and uh, building these kind of sipping spirits that are just, uh, we try to make them a really special experience that you can really go to straight, and we do taste them straight at the, uh, at the, at the distillery, and people enjoy it. I like to say it's a family business and my wife's family actually has been in spirits Rakia in Bulgaria for generations so it was very natural kind of as this became an opportunity to get involved in it but it's also uh, it's um, I think it's coming on seven years I think this is our seventh summer if I'm not mistaken yeah. Spirits are taxed at ten times the rate of wine um, and more than that of beer and so it's a you know most craft distillers in Ontario have other jobs to make it and meat and I'm in involved in a medical imaging company in uh, Thunder Bay that does uh, uh, positron emission tomography. And uh, my uh, partner, Maria, she is, uh, is a vice president of engineering of a software company in, in Toronto as well. So it's uh, we keep busy, but it definitely is, uh, there's a kind of a heart and soul to the place here that's lovely to come to. So yeah, so very kindly, you've got some glasses in front of me, yes. some tasting. Maybe yes. you could sort of introduce absolutely. What, this lovely absolutely. liquid. Yes, absolutely. So the first one here is a, is a pine vodka. And I, I think that it's, um, I must admit, with some of these processes, as we've gotten more um, steeped in the traditions, we've kind of realized that we may have named them inappropriate at the beginning. Um, this is uh, made in the same manner as a gin. Uh, because it doesn't have juniper, you can't be called a gin. So it's, it's more like a pine gin, potentially. So 
it's it's uh, we actually um, we we take a, a whole Christmas tree and then we steep it in our vodka and uh, it, the boughs at least and it's uh, I, I I love the way that the coniferous comes through. Um, it is a little bit evocative of a gin in that way too. They, you know, they're similar kind of trees. But uh, this is, you know, my go-to camping spirit. Uh, we use it in Caesars here. I think it's 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 uh, it's one that's definitely grown on us. And uh, yeah. Fantastic. And so it's you're not just stripping the needles off, you're putting the entire bough. The bough, yeah, the bough. Not the trunk, but the bough, yeah. Wow, incredible. <laughs> and how long does that process take? It's a days, it's not weeks, you know, it's a, it extracts. And in general, the extraction is really efficient. Um, we obviously used our, our higher proof spirits. We use a similar process for extracting for our bitters. And when you're looking at a 60% alcohol, it's uh, it does an amazing job of pulling some of these essences out of the botanicals. It's really, it's really quite wonderful. Fantastic. We'll yeah. have a quick sip. Okay, there you go. It's really wonderful. It's, it definitely puts hairs in your chest. This is right. It's, it's not subtle about its uh, no. pineness, no. no it's not and was that where did that idea come from? Was that just something you thought you'd experiment? That with? one was uh, the brainchild of the uh, of the distillery when we, we were already engaged. And I must admit, this is one that we thought that we were not going to continue. And but like I say, it really does grow on you, and it's uh, um, by customer demand, by popular demand. And then we kind of embraced the brand and came up with a, a new label for it that is, um, yeah, speaks to both the county and. The, and the city, we have a little white squirrel from Trinity Bellwoods, um, which is where we are in the city as well, on the label. We, yeah, we kind of like, we fell in love with our little pine vodka now. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. And the taste really lingers. You can really <laughs> like, really like it. As it's working its yeah, way it's down. Still, you're still working through your Christmas <laughs> in your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> Santa, Santa yeah. <laughs> and the next one is this lovely sort of... Yeah, Old Tom. So this has a, a pink color to it coming from Sumac. So this is a, a steep that happens after the, kind of the gin distillation. And uh, Old Tom being that it's a, a, a sweetened gin. So it's a little bit sweeter um, as opposed to London Dry. And and it's a uh, very popular bottle with us here. This is this is the, if that was our Christmas in the in a, in your mouth. This is a little a little uh, sip of summer. It's, it's very seasonal, um, and so we're getting into our peak season here, coming into July. Every year um, through COVID has been unpredictable in its own way. It's been up and down, some very high, some lower, and um, we are uh, we're starting to see it kind of level into a continuation of pre-COVID at this point. We're kind of kind of picking up where we left off. Every year we get uh, a little bit better at what we do and a bit more kind of aware of who we are it's 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 been a it's been a lovely process of kind of growing up well i'm back in toronto to meet one of the best known names in the city's restaurant sector jen ag is an author and a serial restaurateur she says that there are conversations underway following the upheaval of the last few years re-evaluating certain aspects of food drink and hospitality in the city I mean, we do, of course, try to source locally. Like we work a lot with 100 kilometer foods um, and directly with farmers and um, as much as is possible. Like we are not using, I don't think we use, like we don't use a big, like a big, like a Cisco or anything like that for any of our restaurants. And I mean, some restaurants do that. That's fine. It's a different kind of thing. Sometimes you want um, a filet of fish that's like battered with chips. You know, sometimes you just want that. But yeah, we we deal small as much as possible. And I don't know that people fully appreciate and understand how much that costs and how much food should actually cost, which is another conversation that has been starting to happen where people are complaining about the cost of restaurants. And it's just like, do you understand what the profit margin is here? <laughs> like, it's nothing. It's so, so small. 
So yeah, the the better thing, the better quality that we want to provide for people. Often we take the cut as the owners rather than because you're not really able to build it into the cost necessarily all the time. Although I'm, we we do we have to like prices have to go up. It has to happen. Especially now, I guess. I mean, does it feel like a particularly pressurized time now? In, in yeah, that I mean, beef is insanely expensive. A lot of the things that we started serving at the Huff, a lot of the motivation there was to sell offcuts that were cheap. And like, they're not cheap anymore. And that's, you know, that that's a thing that started to happen maybe eight, nine years ago. But now they're really not cheap. So like, there's no pivot to make, like, you can't be like, well, we'll sell ears because ears are expensive now. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah, the only the only way for it to work is for the cost of the food to go up. Like the prices, I think, are still pretty accessible. We really try. But it's like at a certain point, you have to recognize that oxtail is hugely expensive. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't have an answer. But she says, despite the changes at play at the moment in Toronto's hospitality sectors, her restaurants will continue to be guided by the ethos that each was founded in. Like that at Le Swan, the historic dining room she took over in 2018. Swan is really interesting because it had a life in the, in the 90s. And I used to go there with my ex-husband, or my starter husband, as I sometimes refer to him, and my parents and my friends. And it was like the one of very few places. And the other one was Tarot Grill. And there was maybe one or two more, but those are the ones that kind of stick out to me, that were like cool and good and, and played music that you might be interested in. And that was sort of what kept me there. Like the Jane Ferris, who was the chef, was really a comfort food specialist and I would always get the cape on but they'll be they'd be playing like magnetic fields and built to spill and luna and bands that I was deeply into and I was just like what is this this is what a restaurant can be and I was probably you know in my early 20s at the time and I'd go there all the time they would shuck oysters on the bar and the owner was sort of a little bit of gruff, but that was the 90s. And that was kind of like, that's what all dudes with beards were like in the 90s, if you remember. Um, and I just like, I kept going back and going back. And a lot of the people that work there, you know, have since have their own sort of major restaurant careers. I fell in love with it. And I never kind of lost that feeling, sort of my first restaurant love. And many years later, watching it kind of go into decline through multiple owners made me very sad. Nobody was able to ca- to capture the magic that it existed that it existed in the beginning. And then I just got very lucky and happened to kind of catch it in a moment where it wasn't even for sale. The the landlord was just trying to lease it out. And so we got it for a song and didn't need to do much, but we did so much. So we, you know, um, recovered pretty much everything but still kept it, the, it looks the same, but made the lighting a lot better and just turned it into this bastion of loveliness. And really, to me, it sort of has this like Lynchian fantasy vibe that at first did not click properly with people. And I was blown away by this because I was like, I have good taste. How come nobody is getting this? Like people were like, I don't, it's like a, it's like a diner. And then they also serve beef bourguignon. Like people were so confused. I'm like, literally it says French diner. Like this is to me the most genius, obvious concept for this place. Like it's all comfort food connected. Like diner food is comfort food. Bistro food is comfort food. Like these things, it writes itself and it's all booth seating. So 
we could only kind of put sometimes two people in each booth because it's very romantic too. So the metrics weren't quite working either. And I eventually kind of resigned myself to the fact that this would just be something that I would do as a gift to the city, that I would sort of force my business partners into this, like, there would be no returns. It would just be like, uh, no profit, but we would break even and just like steward this restaurant for as many years as we could do this because this was like a generous and kind thing to do. And I really had decided that that's what was going to happen. And, um, and then it sort of ha- kind of a year after, like we were, whenever the sort of, we were getting into indoor dining again, it just something happened. And I don't know if it was like TikTok people, or I don't know what it was, but it just clicked and people started to get it in a real way. And now it's just busy all the time. And I'm so glad we didn't burn it down. There's, you know, steak tartare on one side and sort of meatloaf and mashed potatoes on the diner side. There's, I mean, very delicious. And there's uh, chicken fried steak on one side and then steak free kind of matches up with that. So you, you can sort of see the, the connecting lines there of like, there's a protein in common, but there's very different treatments of that protein. And the diner side is a lot cheaper. So if you want to come in as a 22 year old and like, have just a grilled cheese and a 50, you can absolutely do that. We encourage it. And if you want to come in and splurge and have a platter of steak free, you can do that too. The restaurateur and author Jen Ag there bringing this brief tour of Toronto's food, drink and hospitality sectors to a close. Well, I hope that's whetted some of your appetites, Marcus, and that you'll pay us a visit soon to sample some of it all for yourself. But until then, from me, Thomas Lewis, here in Toronto, it's back to you in the studio at Midori House in London. Monaco's correspondent in Toronto, Thomas Lewis. And that is all we have time for for this week's Toronto-themed edition of The Menu. The programme was reported and produced in Toronto by Thomas and the Menu's production team here in London are Monica Lillis and Callum McLean. I am Marcus Hippi. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Always With Dreams Tonight. Thanks for listening and until next week. So you